0: Dear listener, it's a great joy that you choose to join me. This is Adventist All Radio, the voice of hope. Please keep tuned to this station until the end. I'm your presenter, Samuel Mahangi. This is your favorite New Life program with interesting segments just for you. Part one will be having the Family Life segment by Lydia Cheng. Today, she will talk about good and angry. Thereafter, we'll be having the Bible segment by Brother Ian Mosey. Today, he will talk about how the cross provides forgiveness. But before that, we'll be having a song, Joy to the World, by Gracious Singers. Door
1: to door.
0: And And heaven and nature sing. Thank you so much, Grisha Sings, for such a song. I hope that you've been blessed with that lovely song. Thank you for staying tuned. Let us now prepare to listen to Lydia Cheng as she comes to us with the topic, Good and Anger.
2: Dear listener, welcome to today's Family Life program. Today we're going to talk about good and angry. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for guiding us. We pray that this marriage message may be of help in our marriages. Teach us to honor you in the way we love each other. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You used to be madly in love, but now you're just mad. Does that describe you as to how you relate to your spouse? Do you find that before you got married, you used to see so many things that you liked and loved about him or her, and now you can barely see beyond all the things that irritate you? Steve and I have been in that place in our marriage many times. After the newness of the relationship wears off and you live together day in and day out, you start to see things in a whole different way. Deferring habits and ways of approaching life become glaringly noticeable to the point where you feel they have to be To the point where you feel they have to be addressed in order for you to live in any sort of peaceful existence together. But the problem is how you address the issues that are bothering you. That's where most couples get into trouble. We certainly have many times, but can you be good and angry? We think so. We'd like to share a few things we've learned along the way in our marriage that you may find helpful. To some of you, this list will just be a friendly reminder. To others, some of these things you might not have considered before. One, be respectful in how you deal with everyone, but especially your spouse. And the reason is not necessarily because he or she deserves it, but because God's word tells us to do so. Just read Ephesians 5 and you will see what I mean. I have to admit that for a while in our marriage, I neglected to do that. I listened to the reasoning of the world to treat someone with respect when I felt they acted worthy of my respect. But that's false information. I am to treat my husband with respect as unto the Lord, not as unto his behavior. He is created in the image of God, even if he doesn't act like it. And I am to be mindful of that. No matter how he treats me or how your husband or wife treats you, that doesn't mean that your words or actions have to be demeaning. I can still communicate without getting into unwholesome talk we are to submit to one another out of reverence to christ and say things in a respectful manner sometimes i forget that and when i do i am not acting like a child of light which reflects the character of the lord jesus that is a goal all of us should keep before us Two, keep in mind that your spouse is not your enemy that may seem like a simplistic statement But have seen many people treat their spouse and speak to their spouse like they are the enemy you may not like what your spouse is doing or saying but he or she is still not your enemy try a little kindness the bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools when we are cursed we blessed when we are persecuted we endure it When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Three, don't call your spouse demeaning names. The Bible says reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. When you call your spouse demeaning names, does that bring healing or do they pierce like a sword? Even if your spouse says words he or she shouldn't, does that justify your stooping as low? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. By calling your spouse degrading names, will that build him or her up and pave the way to peace and compromise, or will it stir things up? Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk from. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Ask the Lord to help you to place a guard over your mouth, so that you will not say what you shouldn't. Four. Don't be so quick to jump into an argument when you're angry. Sometimes we can become too reactionary to something our spouse says or does and as a result, out of anger we attack. A fool gives full vent to his anger but a wise man keeps himself under control. There are times when my anger leads me to say things I shouldn't. I've had to learn when to say something and when to take a break and revisit the problem after a time away from my husband so I can cool down first. I go into another room or take a walk or whatever to cool down and ask the Lord to talk to me help me to sort out my thoughts so they are healthy and help me to be wise in my response it may prolong the conflict when taking a break but it can also help to but it can also help so your words and emotions don't escalate into ungodliness words from a wise man's mouth are gracious but a fool is consumed by his own lips at the beginning his words are folly, at the end they are wicked madness, and the fool multiplies words. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city. That's in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. 5. Conflict is normal. When Cindy and I got married, says Steve, I thought that conflict should never happen. Now, 43-plus years later, I know that's virtually an impossibility. Any two people in very close relationships should expect that there will be conflict. And while we don't set out to irritate or offend, it is just bound to happen. Accepting conflicts as a fact of life helps us deal with it better. And it's important to remember that conflicts are not destructive in themselves. It's the way we handle them that determines how destructive they may become. I've heard it said that if we handle conflicts well, we tend to draw closer to each other. Six, be honest with one another. Ephesians 4.25 says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Frankly, this is an area I have struggled with because being transparent can be painful at times. Often what it boils down to is that when Cindy and I get into an argument, if I do not intentionally determine to respond from a biblical point of view, I can find myself easily falling back into a fleshly response of condemning or blaming Cindy rather than looking at my faults or my sin. It isn't easy to accept others' feelings, especially when they reveal our failures and weaknesses. We may have to continually work at keeping a wall from being built between us, which blocks open and honest communication. Seven, when you encounter conflict, remember, take it to the Lord first. Even after 43 plus years of marriage and thousands of conflicts, you would think we would have it down pat by now. That when an argument or conflict starts, the very first thing we do is go to the Lord in prayer. Let me illustrate this from something that happened to us. Cindy pointed out that I have a tendency to put away dishes that aren't always the cleanest. Rather than say, you know, honey, you're right. I'm sorry, and I will work harder to be more observant of the dishes before I put them away. I shot back with my own barb, and then when, and then we were off to the races in fighting with each other. We both then escalated the argument. Then the Holy Spirit convicted me that I took Cindy by the hand. Then the Holy Spirit convicted me and I took Cindy by the hands. I prayed and asked God, and asked God to forgive me and help me to be more attentive to these kinds of details. Then Cindy apologized and we both lived happily ever after. Well, not exactly, but it did improve how the rest of the day unfolded. I hope you understand the point here. Ask the Lord to show you where you might be wrong. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. May God bless your marriage. This material is provided by Marriage Missions International. Until next time, God bless you.
0: Hope that you that family segment. This is the New Life program coming to you from Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Do not forget to send us your thoughts concerning this program by writing to the producer, Adventist World Radio, PO Box 42276, 100 Nairobi, Kenya. Our email address is awrnairobi at ek.adventist.org. Let us now hear from gracious singers with the song, La Ajabu.
1: No, no we
0: Thank you once again for staying tuned to our station. It is time for the Bible segment. Join me as I welcome Brother Ian.
3: Greetings dear listener in Jesus name. Welcome to our study today and the topic of our study is finding forgiveness at the cross. I am your presenter, Ian Muse. Even though his hand was stayed and God provided another sacrifice, Abraham really did give up his son that day. He experienced all the pain, heartbreak and horror that attend the death of an only child. Holding the power to save his son's life He would not exercise it. God intervened only after it was fully apparent that Abraham would not hesitate to offer up Isaac. Thank God for the faith of Abraham that for the equal faith and submission of his beloved son. No one can miss the impact of that very moving human story. It brings the love and sacrifice of the atonement within the understanding of every child of Abraham. Now we can grasp a little better how the father and his only begotten son suffered at the cross the cost of our redemption becomes clearer but now we must consider another aspect of this heavenly drama which will further illuminate god's love and sacrifice how does the death of one man the second adam provide forgiveness for all who have sinned the bible says without shedding of blood is no remission of sins hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 remission of course means forgiveness. The question is, how does Christ's death make it possible for him to forgive sin? This brings us to the crux of all we have learned so far. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer the second death in order to acquire the power to forgive. The germ of all forgiveness is rooted in an act of substitution. Whoever forgives another person must actually substitute himself for the one he forgives and be willing to suffer the consequences of the wrong done. For example, if I forgive someone a debt, I must be prepared to suffer the loss of the amount. If I forgive a blow, I must be willing to suffer the pain of it without requiring the one who gave it to be punished. Justice requires that every offender be recompensed in proportion to what he did. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. The one who gives a blow Must also suffer an equal blow in return. Forgiveness, though, relieves the offender from receiving what he legally deserves. The forgiver accepts the consequence himself in order that the guilty one can go free without punishment. Thus, there is clearly a substitution of the innocent for the guilty in every act of forgiveness. As a further demonstration, let us imagine that a murdered man could forgive his murderer from beyond the grave. He would, in effect, be consenting to his own death in order that the killer will not be punished. By accepting the result of the offense against him, he allow his own death to satisfy the penalty which could be legally laid upon the murderer. This illustration brings us very close to the heart of the atonement. We are dealing here with the readjustment of a jarred relationship. That is what atonement really is. Two parties are always involved, the wronged and the wrongdoer. In this case, it is God, the wronged, and man, the one who sins against him. Justice demands an adequate expiation of the sin. Only two causes are possible. Either justice will exact the prescribed penalty, or there must be forgiveness from the offended one. If forgiveness is extended, the forgiver will have to accept the consequences of the sin and suffer it in place of the guilty. The penalty for sin is death. So in order to grant forgiveness to the sinner, Jesus must be willing to bear in his own body the same punishment that the broken law would demand of the sinner. The punishment for sin is not the first death, but the second death. That is why the protracted agony of Jesus on the cross was totally unlike any other death. Thousands of criminals were crucified in the same physical way that Christ was nailed to the cross, but they suffered only the bodily pain or the first death. He experienced the awful condemnation and separation from God that the vilest of sinners will feel in the lake of fire. His sensitive nature was traumatized by sharing vicariously the guilty of foul rapes, murders, and atrocities. He became sin in order to allow the full wrath of the law to fall upon him in exactly the same way it will fall upon the lost. In no other way can we explain the mysterious anguish of spirit which surrounded our Savior in his closing hours of life. From the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus bore the accumulated sins of mankind in his breaking heart. Not one ray of light was permitted to penetrate the blanket of total alienation from his Father in heaven. In order to take the place of guilty sinners and to provide forgiveness, there could be no difference in their penalty and his penalty. Let no one suggest that the father did not suffer equally with his son. The divine forbearance of God in allowing wicked men to torture his son to death is the ultimate proof that he loves us with the same love that he loved us. The choice he faced was very simple. He could spare the son or he could spare us. There was no other choice. The law had been broken, the law which was holy and perfect. As a reflection of his character, it could not be changed or destroyed. The penalty had to be paid. The father loved those who had broken his law, but he also loved his son. Look again at the scene around the cross. God looked upon those wicked men as they spat upon Jesus and hit him in the face with their fists. They were unworthy to touch the hem of his garment, but they were mauling him to death. He held the power in his hand to smite those little men into oblivion. He could save his son from cruel towns and blows. But if he intervened, not one human being would ever live again. Adam, Abraham, Joseph, Daniel, and every other child of Adam will be lost for eternity. Their resurrection depended wholly upon the death and resurrection of his beloved son. In his omniscience, God must have remembered every individual face and name, even of those who had not yet been born. In that moment, God thought about you and me. Even though he saw all our miserable failures, he still wanted us to be with him for eternity. He knew the great majority will not accept the offer of eternal life with him, even though it would be provided at such a fearful cost. But he also knew that a few would love him and gladly receive and substitutionary death of his son in their behalf. So God turned away from his son and allowed him to be crushed to death under the weight of his sins, he did not commit. Even the sun hid its face from the terrible sin, and the earth shuddered in protest. It is finished. Jesus cried and yielded up his life. John chapter 19 verse 30. Listener, the price of redemption had been paid. Was it too high? For multiple millions, it was an empty investment, a wasted sacrifice. They would lightly esteem the entire transaction and reject it out of hand. But what about you? Now that you see a little clearer what it cost, do you find yourself responding to the investment he made in your salvation? I believe that you can see hope in what Christ has done for us on the cross. May God bless you as you meditate upon this great sacrifice. Amen. I was your presenter, Ian Musa. Have a good time.
0: We are grateful for the time you have accorded us today. Let us meet right here at Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Don't forget to send us your views and comments to the producer, Adventist World Radio, PO Box 42276-00100, Nairobi, Kenya. You can also email us at awnairobi at ek.adventist.org. I have been your presenter, Samuel Mang. Until then, stay safe, stay blessed.
1: I no.